Well, last week we started our fourth and final message geared toward uh, church body life. We've been looking at different passages, different aspects, so you might call it a topical series, in order to prepare our hearts, uh, salt our own hearts, our flesh, as, as we, we look to preserve and protect what, what God commands us to preserve and protect, which is it's the picture of the gospel, the unity within the body of Christ, and we're doing it as we consider future plans. I've told you a number of times we are, we are a blessed people, and even the things that we're preaching about not necessarily are active in our body, but in our, in our church, but, but we understand how, how potential uh, sin is in, in coming up in, in lives. So, so we looked at how leaders respond to to the, the Hebrews and the Hellenists in Acts 6, what they're to do to meet needs within the church. We've looked at the responsibilities of members in correcting one another. In 1 Thessalonians, we talked about the theology of unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3. And, and then Nathan told us about the sin of treating the church like a grocery store. I want what's on my list, and if you don't provide what's on my list, then 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 I'm going to get upset and, and go somewhere else. So last week, we're going to continue this morning. We were looking at first, uh, I'm sorry, at Romans chapter 12. We're looking at activities that reveal the, the Christian life. Uh, one of the favorite and famous, well-known passages in the Bible is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or on the basis of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then Paul will now go on later in chapter 12 and, and actually outline some specific responsibilities or grace-filled duties that Christians have that actually give evidence to whether we are a consecrated believer, whether we're really Christians. These are things that... Aren't just this, this list is not just for the super Christians or the people that are submitted to the Lordship of Christ or the people that, that are in the discipleship phase rather than the salvation phase. These are things that should be and must be in every believer's life. Now, as we said, that when you go to a list like this, it's very easy to go, nope, I don't have that one. I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I need to be on that one. I'm, I'm not where I need to be on any of them. And whenever you see that, don't get discouraged because the fact that you realize that you're not where you need to be and the fact that you desire to get there is an evidence that the Spirit of God lives in you. Okay? The Christian life is not perfection, it's direction. God changes our desires, changes our want-tos. He takes us from loving sin to loving Him, and then He sets us on a trajectory. He gives us a direction to live, and He fills our hearts with desire to pursue that direction. He's the one who ultimately accomplishes our salvation and our sanctification. It's all grace, and you know that. And yet, even within your own personal life, you have a part. So who is responsible for the Christian sanctification? You or God? And you know the answer? It's yes. Ultimately, God is responsible to conform you to the image of Christ. If the Spirit of God was not active in you, and God had not promised to conform you to the image of your Son, none of us would have any hope. But because of that promise, and because of the Spirit living in us, we have a desire, and we strive, and we labor, Paul says even to the point of exhaustion, to form these things in our lives. 
And so we're looking at this list that really give us an opportunity to take an x-ray of the human of the human heart. I can remember when my boys, one of my boys broke a bone, um, I, I was I was upset. But when my daughter, Olivia, broke a bone, I was more than upset. This is my baby girl. And then when I saw the x-ray of the bone, I knew it was bad. But when I saw the x-ray of the bone and you know, one bone sitting on top of the other one, then I really figured out that, uh, sorry for those of you who got too graphic there, some of you are going, ugh. You know. It was. It was hard to watch or reset the bone. But without the x-ray, the doctor could not see or tell what the issue was or which bone was on top of the other or how to reset it. Think of this list as taking an x-ray of your own heart. These are activities, these are attitudes that we should have operating in our lives. And we want to rejoice over the grace that we see because if you're a believer, you'll see some of these graces or at least some progress in these areas. And we also want to confess the sin that we find. I think one of the dangers that we have whenever we talk about grace and we talk about, you know, well, Jesus forgives, Jesus takes you as you are, you just you see sin and you go, well, I mean, Jesus forgives, Jesus takes me as I am. And it's true, He forgives. But that shouldn't motivate you to be complacent. It should motivate you to strive even harder because of the grace that's there. So we said we were going to ask ourselves some questions as we looked at this list, and the guys will bring up that that list now. If you weren't here last week, we're asking these questions of our own hearts. Think of the list as the x-ray, and think of these questions as the radiologist actually evaluating what he sees there. Okay? You're gonna, the Word's going to take the x-ray and you can be the radiologist and look at your own heart and say, do I see these qualities in my life? How much do I emulate that statement that's there? To what extent does it characterize me? If not, why? Why is this not active in my life? What do I need to do to pursue, remove, or be reminded of in order to cultivate it? Because it should be there. Well, open your Bibles, if you're not there, to Romans chapter 12. And let's begin reading in verse 9 at these grace-grounded responsibilities that mark the Christian life. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, clinging to what is good. What we covered last week, what we'll cover this morning. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. What we'll cover tonight. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the lowly or the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, even as I reread that passage to you this morning, I, I, I get beyond where I've already been through the exposition and I go, wow, that's hard. Wow, that's impossible. Wow, I don't do that to my enemies. And again, we just take an x-ray of our hearts. So last week we looked at the first responsibility is genuine love. We're looking at grace-grounded responsibilities that mark the Christian life. And the first responsibility that we saw last week was genuine love, or love that is without hypocrisy. And we define that, or Paul defines that for us as love is, is active. It's, it's not an emotion. This is a review from last week. Love is discriminating. It actually hates. It hates what offends God and harms people. And it also clings to the truth, clings to good, but it's a parallel over to 1 Corinthians. And the idea of clinging is, is like the devotion illustrated by the bond of marriage. You love clings to the truth, that which is good. Well, the second grace-grounded responsibility that he gives here is to prefer one another, and it's found in verse, verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. It's a lot of repeated words there. In honor, giving preference to one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, as one translation puts it. And you actually have two, two phrases there that explain or expound on one another. Just like you had in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he goes on, says, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. It defines what that love without hypocrisy looks like. Here you have, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. He's going to define or further expound what he means by this brotherly affection. Paul talks about a devoted relationship we have with one another in the church one another in the church, and then he talks about what you understand that your family, you, you try to outdo each other in taking the back seat. This idea of preferring one another, Paul says that we're to be like a devoted family. We're to be or live like a devoted family. He says be kindly affectionate or be devoted to one another. And it's an interesting word. I told you last week that that word for love in verse 9 and, and the idea of brotherly love in verse 10 are two different words. You've heard those before, agape and, and phileo. And this word here, this brotherly affection, is actually two words sandwiched together. It has the... It has the word where we get Philadelphia or phileo there, and it has the idea of a brotherly affection or the city of brotherly love. It's the affection between friends. And then it also has another word that's, that's connected. And when it's added, it changes the, the meaning. It ups the ante, if you will. And it's, it's a word that refers to the tender affection amongst family members. It's instinctive affection. 
It's to where brotherly love, where you get phileo, it's, it's the idea of an affection that you have for another person because, because you're attracted to them. There's some quality in them that, that you like about them. It's, it's, it's probably what happens in your heart to a certain degree whenever you just, you just, there's just something about a person that you like. And I just really like that guy. Well, this second word comes along and, and, and ups the ante. This is an instinctive kind of affection. It's a word that was used for the love that a parent had for a child. A mother. A mother's innate love, care, and devotion toward her children. It's, a, it's an attachment sealed by nature. Blood ties. It's to where phileo could be based on personal attraction and desirability. This second word is not. You can choose your friends but you can't choose your family. You love them because they're flesh and blood. I used to tell the boys whenever my boys would give Tracy a hard time and I'd have to come down on them, I would look at them and I would say what I heard James Dobson say one time. I would say, I chose her, I didn't choose you. I had you, i got to put up with you, but I chose her. So if I have to choose, if it's, if it's a matter of choosing you or choosing her, you already know what I'm going to choose because I already chose her. You came along. Because I chose her, right? <laughs> this word is the idea that, that, that not between a wife or a husband and a child in that sense, but between a, between a friend and a blood relative. Now, there's a different relationship there, isn't there? There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And what we understand is brothers are supposed to stick together because they're flesh and blood. That's what this word indicates. It's, it's saying the relationships among Christians should be more than warm feelings, but a family sort of love. You're to have be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. You're, you're to have a devotion in your heart to other members of Timberlake Baptist Church, people that you sit beside, even right now, it's not just warm feelings. Well, I like that person. They go to my Sunday school class. Well, that other person's, they're a nice fella or, or, or lady. This, this word is, is I have a devoted affection to them, an instinctual affection because they are, they're part of my family. That's the idea that Paul is, is giving here. You've heard the statement, you don't have to like people, but you do have to love them. Well, this verse blows that completely out of the water whenever it comes to the church. It absolutely does. As that first word talks about love is a commitment, you know, agape is love is a commitment, and, and it's, it's viewed in action. This has to do with, with feelings, with devotion. It's true that you can love someone you don't like. You can do good for them, you can help them, you can treat them respectfully. And here Paul says we are to love and to have devoted affection afforded those who are in our family. Now, that doesn't mean that you walk around whenever you think of every church member. It's just puppy dogs and daisies. Oh, I just love everybody. Nobody ever gets on my nerves. You know, it's just wonderful. That's not what he's talking about here. I mean, you understand, even within, within, within family love, you fuss, you disagree, but in the end, you're brothers. That's what the idea here is. I told Tracy, I looked at Bella the other day. This is just right after I had to spank her. And, 
And I, I just looked at her, and she's just grinning, you know, looking at me. And I told Tracy, there's one moment, you know, I could just pinch her head off, and the next I could just eat her up, you know? One moment you might be willing to pinch somebody's head off in the body of Christ, and the next minute you eat them up. But what rules? What comes out in the end is a commitment, a devoted affection, because your brothers and sisters in the same body, not just in the universal body of Christ, in this body, we feel the same way toward one another in the body of Christ at times. And, and yet the feeling that gives way is that, is that we're family. It's like the way the brothers, brothers act toward one another if you mess with one of them. Do you remember the first, well, was that one of the first? The horrific stories of, of, of being a pastor and you see your children... Uh, doing things that, you, I mean, you know what's getting ready to happen and, and you're in the front of the church or you're in the back of the church talking to somebody and you can't get to them before they do what you know they're getting ready to do. I can remember, you know, my kids like anybody else's, they fight and fuss with one another and, and I hear this big ruckus out behind Cornerstone Baptist Church and I go out back and here's Bailey on top of another little boy and it was actually a deacon's son and he's just, he's got him down on the ground. Well, of course, I run over there. What's wrong? You know, break it up, boys. Well, he took the swing from Olivia and just threw her on the ground. And I wasn't going to let him do that to my sister. You know, the same person that they were arguing together, you know, in the, in the car. Um, it's like the way that brothers can act toward one another at times. But if you mess with, you mess with one of them, you know, you're going to mess with both of them. The other comes to the rescue. The person that's next to you is a mess at times, but you're related to that mess. And you should have the attitude and the perspective here is that nobody messes with my mess that I'm related to. You know what I mean? You feel that way about your brothers and sisters. You, it's, it's instinctual. You fight for them. There's something that rises up in you and says, yeah, I may not. You, I may be able to say that about them, but you can't. you have that kind of affection toward other church members? I mean, do you feel that, that affection? You're committed to them like a family member? I mean, if you understand what this, what this is saying, you, you'll, you'll, get the, you'll get the people that stay in a church for 40 years and never go anywhere else. You'll understand why they do that. It's not because no other church will have them or take them. <laughs> it's because they're committed to a group of people. You're... You're committed to them like a family, and you don't easily write them off. The prize for the most useless weapon of all times goes to the Russians. It was They invented the dog, D-O-G, mine, M-I-N-E, the dog mine during World War II. The plan was to train dogs to associate food with the undersides of tanks in hopes that the dogs would run hungrily beneath Advancing Panzer Divisions. I have no idea who came up with this, okay? Unfortunately, what kind of tanks do you think they trained the dogs with? Russian tanks. So the dogs associated food solely with Russian tanks, and the plan was tested the first day of the Russian involvement in World War II, and it was scrapped the second day. The dogs with bombs on their backs forced the entire Soviet division to retreat. You can just get this picture of the tranks backing up and the dogs running after them. 
trying to function within the church with some other way, some other bond of affection than what Paul gives here, trying to invent some plastic level of commitment will will put the whole church in retreat. It's not just a matter of, of you. It's a matter of the, the body. We're a family committed to one another. It harms the church as a whole. It also harms you as an individual. If you hurt and neglect your church family, you harm yourself. In early TV days, there was a popular comedy um, where the characters... One of the characters was this really big burly guy who had an annoying habit of jabbing people with his finger. He'd just walk around and jab people with his finger. Finally, one of the other characters could no longer stand it, and he says, I'm ready for him. I put a stick of dynamite in my vest pocket, and the next time he jabs me, he's going to get his hand blown off. That's what we do when church members fight amongst themselves but don't do so as brothers and sisters. God says we're to have such affection for our fellow members that to hurt them should be understood like having a stick of dynamite hidden in our own pockets. You hurt somebody who's part of the body. You hurt your own family. Now, you can get along. You can limp along without certain family members, but it's not the same. In that affection, this idea of this Family love moves you to to action. Look at the second part of the verse. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to, to one another. So, it's not just like a, a family, the devotion of a, of a, of a family, but but it's also like a deferring servant. He describes further what he means here. It's like a deferring servant. You're a devoted family. You're like a devoted family, and you're like deferring servants within that that family. The second phrase literally means to outdo one another, to lead the way in outdoing another person in, in, in showing honor. The result of this instinctual Family affection for one another. These are my people. This is Timberlake Baptist Church. These are members, and we're bound together in the body of Christ. The result of that is the way you live within that body is like a deferring servant, not like a demanding king. Outdo one another. The result of true affection is no one seeks his own honor or position, and everyone is willing to give honor to others. Don't seek your own, give it to others. Don't seek your own demands, seek to fulfill others' demands. Now, obviously, we're talking about matters that don't have to do with doctrine. They don't have to do with things that the Bible speaks on. This is a perfect passage whenever we're talking about forward development or or changes that we make or anything as far as body life that has to do with preferences and aren't doctrinal matters. The attitude in which you approach it is not what's best for me, but what's best for the rest of my brothers and sisters. And if everyone's doing that, there's a mutual submission and a mutual deferring one to another, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's what Paul says the Christian life looks like when it's lived out. Consecrated Christian life. The Christian that lays down their, their bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ. This is, this is what it looks like to live that way. 
that great theologian Ann Landers said, At age 20, we worry about what others think. At age 40, we don't care what they think of us. And at age 60, we discover they haven't been thinking of us at all our whole lives. Well, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? And maybe a good perspective to gain if you fear man or you have a problem with worrying about what other people think. Most of them aren't thinking about us at all. But the Bible says in the church, we're, we're not only to be thinking about others, not ourselves. We labor to prefer, labor to honor them over ourselves. Now, that's supernatural, isn't it? Is it natural to think about others rather than yourself? It's not natural to do that. This is supernatural. Now, watch how Paul, what Paul does here. The first part of the verse, he goes beyond friendship, beyond just, just regular phileo, to brotherly devotion. He goes beyond friendship to brotherly devotion. Now he goes beyond what is brotherly to what is Christ-like. I mean, this goes from friends to brothers to Christ. Because Christ outdid all of everyone everywhere. A friend can be a fair-weather friend, but a brother will be there, where the, be there when the chips are down. Christian relationship that Paul describes here gives their chips to the other, whether they're up or down. The word give preference, give honor. In honor, giving preference. It's in the middle voice, which means that you initiate the action. You initiate giving preference. You don't wait until the opportunity. The idea is that you initiate it. It's something you do. You give preference. You initiate that. You don't wait until you feel like it. You look for ways to prefer others, and then you do it. And it's also in the present tense, which means believers are to continuously reflect this. You're to continuously initiate the action of showing preference to others. When you have that feeling that rises up in your heart, I don't like that, you are to immediately suppress that and pursue honoring and preferring other people. That's what this verse says that you're to do. Preferring, deflecting, honoring is to be a habitual practice or lifestyle amongst Christians. And this verse says you're to try to lead the way in it. There were two friends who met for dinner in a restaurant. Each ordered filet of sole. And a few minutes later, the waiter came back with their order. Two pieces of fish were on the same platter. One was large and one was small. One of the men proceeded to serve his friend. He got the plate out and he placed the small piece of fish on the plate and he handed it to his friend and kept the big piece for himself. Well, you certainly do have nerve, exclaimed his friend. What's troubling you? Asked the other one. You've given me the little piece and kept the big one for yourself. If I was serving, I would have given you the big piece. And the man said, I figured that's what you would do. So since I was serving, I went ahead and took the larger one myself. That's the way some Christians practice church, isn't it? I mean, I, I, knew, you were, I knew you were a godly man, so I'll just go ahead and take the big piece myself. That's not what Jesus did, wasn't it? I mean, it says in Philippians that he took upon himself the human flesh, and not only that, I mean, here's the divine, here's God Almighty stooping 
to us, cloaking Himself in human flesh. He took on the form of a servant. He didn't even come as a human king. He came as a servant. And then even beyond that, He stooped farther. He became obedient to the point of death. He went to the cross. The just for the unjust. That's the model that He gives you. That's how you live out your Christian life. You take the form of a, of a servant and then you go beyond that, even to the point that you kill your own desires. You put to death your own wants and you prop up the desires of another. To consider others before yourself is quite a contrast to the world. The world's characterized by selfishness and the self-oriented person leads with I. I think, I want, I will. This has no theological basis whatsoever, but I thought it was interesting. I found someone who said, did you notice that the vow in sin is I? Me, myself, and I? S-I-N. This is the verse. I found this interesting, and maybe you found someplace else. This is the only place in the Bible I know of where competition is commanded in the church. It's Competition is commanded that you try to outdo one another in this, in obeying this passage. We're to win the trophy. We're to try to win the trophy in taking the back seat. In fact, doing so continually is an evidence that the grace of God is operating in your hearts because our flesh wants to call shotgun at every turn on every decision, doesn't it? You know what calling shotgun is? My son's. Whenever they were young and immature, used to play this game. It was like six months ago, I think. <laughs> and for them, calling shotgun to get in the, in the vehicle wasn't enough. They, they played that if, if the other brother beat you calling shotgun, then, then the brother who lost could run to the truck, and whoever touched the door first was actually the one that got there. So it's like, you know... Shotgun, shotgun, and then, and then they take off running, and they're gone. You know, where did they go? Well, you know, and then whoever gets to the truck first. Well, that wasn't enough. So then it was shotgun, no blitz, right? So you call shotgun, and then you can't blitz for the truck. So now, I, you know, I got you, meaning that you couldn't run to the door. One day coming out of church, before we ever got out of the sanctuary, Nathan comes running up to me, and he beats Bailey, and he says, shotgun, no blitz. And then he turns around and looks at Bailey, you know. And Bailey immediately says, that's not fair because you can't see the truck. You've got to call shotgun no blitz when you see the vehicle and we're inside. And I just thought, what a picture. And it's two brothers competing. Brothers always compete. There's nothing wrong with that. But here it's a much more serious matter, isn't it? Because it's not about who sits in the front seat of a vehicle on the ride home. It's, it's, it's who... It's who asserts themselves to the front of the pack to, to get their own desires. Our hearts want to call shotgun at every turn, on every decision. And if, if our idea or opinion is, is not taken, then, then we want to demand another rule. Uh, shotgun, shotgun, no bliss. Now you've got to see it. It's, it's just one thing right after the other. And when we don't defer to others, church life can become a constant battle of one trying to outwit the other to get their way. As you've heard church politics, and that creates strife. That's sinful. It really is. It could also drive you crazy. I mean, living this way, it'll drive you crazy. Listen, rest in the Lord. I rest in the Lord. 
He's big enough to take care of any issue that comes in your life, and He's big enough to take care of anything that happens in this church. He loves it far more than you do. The root problem to not obeying verse 10 is found back in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of Romans 12. Now notice what he does here. For I say to you, through the grace given to me. Grace. It's grace that we're in the body. It's grace that we're in. That everyone should be reminded of grace. So everyone who is among you should not think of himself or herself more highly than they ought to think. But let them think soberly. The root is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. It's pride. It really is. A man who'd just been elected to British Parliament brought his family to London and he was giving them a tour of the city and and he entered Westminster Abbey and his eight-year-old daughter seemed to be awestruck by the size and the beauty of the magnificent structure. And her proud father, curious about what was going on in her head, asked, And what, my child, are you thinking about? And she replied, Daddy, I was just thinking about how big you are in our house and how small you look here. You shouldn't be thinking of how big you look in church or how great your idea is. You should be thinking how small I look here because Christ reigns in this place. Amen? And pride can creep into our lives without awareness. And at times the Lord has to cut us down to size and it's His grace whenever He does that because He gives grace to the to those who think highly of themselves, who does He give grace to? The humble. And He's an enemy of the proud. You need to be reminded of that. Why? Why is this passage so important, so vital for believers to put into practice? Well, it's not just body life. It's not just, well, it'll make, it'll make the, 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 the wheels of body life go around a whole lot smoother with this kind of oil. It's because the church is a visual display of Christ to the world, isn't it? The quality of love that a body of believers has with one another is the primary means by which the world recognizes us as followers of Christ. We love each other because we're members of one family. I mean, we looked at the passage before. Paul even says whenever you have a piece of meat set before you by an unbeliever that was sacrificed to an idol and that offends a believer, you're to offend the unbeliever, the unsaved man rather than the believer, lest the unsaved man think it would be better for me to remain unsaved than it is to be a brother or sister in Christ. We must love each other because we're members of one family. John 13, 35 1 John 3.10, 1 John 3.17, 1 John 3.18, 3.19. It talks about loving the brethren. And Jesus says that the world will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. That's why it's so vital and important. Now, how do you do that? I mean, how do you really do that? Because, I mean, nobody here is going to disagree with this passage. Everybody's going to amen we're going to laugh at the illustrations. But how do you do that? Especially when brothers and sisters get on your nerves, right? 
It's natural. Well, let me give you three things. They're not going to bring these up, so you're going to have to listen and write them down, and I'll go through them quickly. found three suggestions of how to practice this by John Piper. How do you have affection for a believer you may not even like? How do you honor believers that may even do dishonorable things? Here's the first suggestion. Number one, preach to yourselves that other believers no matter how imperfect are the children of God, your Father. Preach to yourselves that other believers, no matter how imperfect, are the children of God, your Father. Tell yourself the truth that you are brothers and sisters forever. Remind yourself that Christ shed His blood for them. That's the easiest way I've found to to salt the sin that rises up in my own hearts is when I'm beginning to get annoyed with someone who's a believer, I remind myself, Brian, Jesus shed their blood for that person. <laughs> he died for them. And that really puts my offense or whatever's grating against me in, in perspective. They are, they are forgiven for, for all of the things that about them that make you upset. Christ's blood has already paid for everything that maybe they're even doing legitimately toward you. They're justified in faith alone. Don't, don't claim the doctrine of justification in word and deny it in your action. Number two, look for evidences of grace in their flawed life. Love the little phrase... Be a grace hunter, not a sin sniffer, right? You know how easy it is to find sin in other people's lives? You know it's a spiritual labor to find grace? You're to hunt for the evidences of grace in someone's life. Look for evidences of grace in their flawed lives. Every believer has evidences of grace. God is at work in every saint. Don't dishonor the work of God by only complaining about the works of the flesh. Look for evidences of grace. Look for fruit of the Spirit. That's where the work of God is. We know where the works of the flesh comes from, but they're in the body with you. That's what God's doing. He's, he's forming Christ in them. And God will straighten it all out at the last judgment. I'll give you the third one. And the last one. Remember. Remember you were once utterly alienated from God and cut off without hope. Ephesians 2.12 Remember you were undeserving of all the divine affection and all divine honor, but God has given you both in Jesus Christ. That's what you remember. You don't just remember that Christ died for that person. You don't just look for evidences of grace and the fact that He's promised to, to keep them and carry them to the end and sanctify them. You remember your own condition. Philippians 2, 3, Paul says, Humility 
or lowliness is the key to counting others better than ourselves, and that is counting them worthy of our service. They're worthy of your service. In humility, you count others more significant than yourself, so so you must never forget your undeserving position because that's the true seed of affection for others. And you do that today, and you do that tomorrow. You practice that habitually, and you initiate it. And there'll be times when you'll get out of whack, and be times where you may butt heads, but in the end, you come back to the fact that that you you're a family, and you come back to the fact that you are to try to win the trophy of taking the back seat, not coming up with a new rule for shotgun no blitz to get your way. 